0: Thank <music> you. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The mayor of San Juan, Carmen Julian Cruz, got called nasty by President Trump after her sharp criticism of the administration's response to Hurricane Maria. She famously wore a nasty t-shirt the next day and never let up on her criticism. We'll spend most of the hour today with the mayor of San Juan. And we recall Hurricane Mitch 20 years ago. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. San Juan's mayor, Carmen Julie Cruz, is spending a few days in Chicago. She was at the Sox game yesterday, spoke at the City Club on Friday, and is at Representative Jan Schakowsky's Ultimate Women's Power Lunch today. I caught up with the mayor of San Juan on Friday at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She was the keynote speaker for the UIC's day-long conference, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. Lots of members of Chicago's Puerto Rican community were there. There were several nasty T-shirts in the crowd. Carmen Julien spoke without notes and had a very easy rapport with the audience. We're going to hear an excerpt of the keynote address and then an interview I did with her afterwards. This section of the speech runs for about 15 minutes. Here's Carmen Julien Cruz, mayor of San Juan.
1: Seven months ago today... Hurricane Maria savagely destroyed Puerto Rico. A couple of weeks before that, Hurricane Irma had begun doing the exact same thing. And we still see those videos and feel as if it was today because to this day, between 75,000 and 100,000 Puerto Ricans still don't have electricity. Because it is this day, 500,000 roofs need to be either totally or partially built. Because our suicide rate has gone up 55%. Because we don't even know how many people died from the botched effort of an administration that it wasn't that they couldn't do it, It was that they didn't get it. President Trump had absolutely no sense of urgency regarding the lives of people of Puerto Rico. He thought it was okay for him to go down to Puerto Rico and throw paper towels at us. And he didn't even stay for the night. He could have stayed at Air Force One. And he didn't even walk around where people could touch him or see him. You know, rather than being the comforter-in-chief, he was the hater-in-chief. But then again, that should have not surprised many people. So, although I thank the provost for her kind words and Jose made me, Jose, I thought I was like seven feet tall when he was talking. I'm like, did I do all of that? You know, I did what I had to do. I did what any of you would have done. In fact, the city of Chicago, five days after Maria, September 25th, was the first one to bring provisions to Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican agenda, Luis Gutierrez and Ram Emanuel, and also give yourself a big hand. And I'll say it again, I'm not the same person that I was on September 20th. We will no longer be able to hide our inequality and our inefficiencies and our discrimination behind some palm trees and piña Because, you see, as Puerto Ricans, we also have to own up to what we haven't done right. Because as bad as it was for President Trump to do what he did, there were people on the other side that didn't say, wait a minute, Mr. President, enough. You know, you can be respectful, but be truthful. I was sworn in as mayor on the... the 14th of January, and on the 15th of January, I walked through in what nobody expected, nobody expected me to win. You know, she's a woman, she's little. (laughs) She talks to all these people that people don't talk to, you know, the LGBTQ community, the teachers, the unions, the taxi drivers, the students, the feminists, the, the immigrants, the undocumented people. Oh, my God, you know. So she'll never win. And I kept saying, yes, you know, because the power of love really is stronger than the power of hate. It truly is. It's not poetic, it's truth. And I thought, how about if all those people that other people never pay attention to join together, and we have the capacity not to say we all think alike in everything, but we have a capacity to say we're going to work towards a particular set of goals. That doesn't mean we agree on every single issue, but it means that on this particular things, we're gonna agree and we're gonna move forward. So, you know, we're brand new. I mean, we beat a 12 year incumbent. And my secretary, who I didn't know was my secretary at the time, just walked in and said, Hay un hombre ahí que dice que es un prisionero político Y quiere entrar a verla Pero cómo va a hacer eso How can it be You're not going to let a political prisoner Come in here to your office, right And I smile and I said Well first He cannot be a political prisoner Because he's here so he, he must have been a former political prisoner. But yes, do you know this man? And I said, no, I don't know him. And then she whispered something. He says he's friends with Oscar Lopez Rivera. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry? You know Oscar Lopez Rivera? <laughs> And I said, Well, tell him to come in. So here he comes with a bag of t shirts. I still have a few. And I says, mira, the Saint Sebastian feast is a few days from now, so we just wanted to know if we could collect signatures. And here's some t shirts that you know, we I collect t shirts, by the way. We want you to wear and and all that stuff. And 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 he was like apologetic. And I said, Sure, what do you need? And he looked at me like he wasn't really ready. He was ready to fight and convince me he wasn't really ready for what had happened. But but why do I tell you this, and what does that have to do with Maria? For the longest time, as Puerto Ricans, we sort of have consented to the way we've been treated by the government. And we have to make a very clear distinction. The American people... And the diaspora opened their hearts, opened their wallets. You know, while here at the University of Illinois and Chicago, they're waiving all kinds of fees, in Puerto Rico today, the Fiscal Control Board is imposing a fiscal plan at the University of Puerto Rico, which will make credits go from $55 to $175 credit. They are telling us that we have to close half of the campuses, of the 11 campuses of the University of Puerto Rico. So you will always find friends where you think you may not find friends. You just have to be ready to stand up. For me, it was easy. I was very small. You can tell I'm not very tall now. And my grandmother, who was a wonderful woman, Always get me good advice. She says, you're very small, so when you get in a fight in the school playground, you have to run a little faster, you have to hit a little harder, and you have to scream you know, through the top of your lungs. So um, I'm 55. And I often joke and I say, I don't look it, right? I don't look it. No. But she taught me something that is very important. You, you don't start a fight that you cannot finish and you finish every fight. Even if you didn't start it, but you got pulled into. I didn't start this fight. That man living on that White House in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue started the fight, and I wasn't about to stand down because the people of Puerto Rico were dying. It went as far as to the Pentagon writing some emails and saying the mayor of San Juan continues to be Un obstacle, an obstacle on us trying to spin this as a good news story. But, you know, truth finds a way. They send it to a reporter. So Maria gave us a chance to see things in a different way. Now, I know that there are some words that are difficult to say and hard to accept. But as Jan Sussler reminded me, I think it was yesterday... There are things that are worse being done than said. If anyone had any doubt before September 20th, after September 20th, it should be a foregone conclusion. Puerto Rico is a territory. It is a colony of the United States of America. That's it. And I know you're not applauding because you like it. I know you're applauding because in order to solve an issue, you have to accept it. Now, that means that we have to wake up and not consent to this anymore. And I have found in the last seven months that there are many minds and hearts and ears ready to listen on how we're going to talk and move forward for a different path. It isn't easy for me to say that, but I will no longer consent to a systematic injustice and neglect of the people of Puerto Rico, period. Now why, why do I know it's possible? Because seven white men voted to hear Brown versus Board of Education in the Supreme Court and ruled in favor of justice. So there are friends anywhere and everywhere. For example, John McCain submitted a bill to exempt Puerto Rico from the Jones Act. So now, do I like everything that Senator McCain stands for? No. But am I gonna bite him if justice comes my way? Through him, of course not. So it is all about building an alliance to combat colonialism. Because now it isn't something that we talk about in the cappuccino-filled rooms. It isn't something that is alien to us. Now it is the reason why we didn't get help, we didn't get water, we didn't get medication, and we can blame it on the current resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But you know, slavery isn't better or worse depending on how your master treats you. If your master gives you three meals a day and beats you 10 times a week, that doesn't make slavery better than if your master beats you 100 times a day and feeds you one time. The sheer sense of slavery is what is wrong. So we cannot depend any longer on a Congress being good or bad. We have to change the structure that allows for somebody else to, as Gandhi said, be masters in somebody else's land so I often wonder what is it about me what is it we don't deserve the laws of nature or nature's God we don't have those unalienable rights why because we're Latino we're people of color we're from the Caribbean is that it because believing that would be drinking the Kool-Aid, the bad kind of Kool-Aid. Believing that would be saying that everything that this country holds dear, it's only for this country. And I don't believe that. That's not the heart of the American people. That's not the heart of the nurses and the machinists and the plumbers and the doctors and the technicians and the truck drivers that I saw day in and day out saving lives in San Juan and 34 other municipalities. So at some point you start telling yourself that it doesn't matter why it happened. And that you have to hang on to the good-natured people of this country that are willing to transform and change society. That if we want a really democracy, we have to listen to people. And the leaders have to follow. And the people have to lead. That's it. Maria Took her homes, took her livelihood, took lives, and threw us into a kind of spiral of desperation. We saw people with glazed eyes, not knowing truly what hit them. Mother is holding on to a rope to get to the other side. But what she didn't take was our resolve. What she didn't take was her pride. I'm the mouthpiece. But I carry within me the voices of thousands of people. Of the ones that we did get to. And of the ones that we didn't get to. Of the ones that died alone. Because they had no food. No insulin. No ventilator. So I need you to help me let them know wherever they are that their lives mattered. Because we didn't start this fight, but we're going to finish it.
0: That San Juan's mayor, Carmen Julene Cruz. She spoke Friday at the University of Illinois at Chicago at their day-long conference, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. I had a chance to talk with her after the, break, after the speech. We will have that for you after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. you are listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm here at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and we're here at the conference Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. The keynote speaker, it was just given, was the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín Cruz, It's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. No,
1: thank you very much. And thank you for waiting. It took a little while to get here.
0: You know, I wanted to ask about the Fiscal Control Board. And on Twitter, you called the Fiscal Control Board an exercise in raw colonialism. They came out with recommendations, five-year recommendations, ideas for what's going to happen with Puerto Rico. And it sounds pretty harsh. A lot of schools are going to close. A lot of municipalities are going to have budgets cut 10% off of uh, people's... 10 to 15%
1: off the pensions. pensions yeah. An increase in the credits, university credits, from $55 to $157. A reduction of about half of our campuses at the university level a reduction in the amount of money that is spent on health care. So right now people are going to have a basic health care plan, but they're going to have to opt up and buy, purchase more health care services, which means that in order for that to be efficient from the standpoint of the fiscal control board, there would have to be less health services. Today, the director of the control board and whom you know from Chicago, Chicago. um, were asked if they could live on $1,000 a month. And they both said, with my current way of living, no, I couldn't. So there aren't really recommendations. They're a recipe for disaster. And they are an exercise in raw colonialism. Seven people that weren't selected by the people of Puerto Rico in any way, shape, or form. There's a clause that says that they have sovereignty over any decision that the governor makes or the Puerto Rican Congress makes. Can you imagine if somebody came to the city of Chicago and told the mayor, no, 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 mayor, you know, this is not what you're going to do. You're going to do what other people that have nothing to do with the electoral process are going to decide to do. It's very undemocratic. It's very un-American. It just reeks of colonialism.
0: One of the things you pointed out in your keynote here at the University of Illinois at Chicago, they're waiving a lot of fees for people from Puerto Rico who Mm -hmm. want to come here and a lot of documentation and things. But in Puerto Rico, you're going to end up with university fees that are almost three times higher.
1: Three times higher, less amount of campuses, which is important. Campuses are not only good for the students. But campuses keep a lot of small businesses and an entire uh, economic structure in each one of the towns that they're at. For example, you have Utuado campus, uh, which is right in the middle of the island. It was very harshly hit. Um, This was one of the towns that you may have seen on TV where all of the bridges collapsed. So they were prisoners in their own town. Now, if that campus closes, a lot of small businesses are going to close. So the livelihood itself of small towns is going to be really compromised, But more than that, it is the idea that you can continue to do the same thing and get the same different result. Nowhere in the world austerity measures have worked. Even today, the Puerto Rican central government was saying that they've received about $390 million less in income in just a few months. And of course, Maria just devastated the economy September, October. It started perhaps coming a little bit back in November, but it was mostly in January that things started moving a little bit. When people ask me, I often say, we were in the midst of hell, now we're with the gates of hell. It's a little better, but it's still hell.
0: One of the things uh, that was really striking in what you said was there were 500,000 people who've left since the hurricane and 500 millionaires who've moved in. You've got disaster gentrification going on. What do you do about that? I guess on the one hand, you've got some people with money coming in, but they're really coming in and buying cheap and pushing people.
1: Well, and and the one thing is you have entrepreneurs and millionaires that are cognizant of the fact that they must have social consciousness. We have one in San Juan, Nick Prouty, that is an example of how to respect the laws, and how to really insert yourself. And he moved his family into Puerto Rico. There's a piece of two legislations, Law 20 and Law 22, that allowed them for capital gains to be tax-free in Puerto Rico. So what we saw starting to happen in San Juan is that some of them would buy separate plots of land of people that had to leave Puerto Rico because they had to look for a better health situation or elderly that had to move in with their children. And then they would be requesting for exemptions to the building codes to put all these plots of land together and come up with a high rise. Well, we started saying no and applying the permit codes, and they started moving to a different place. But it is, as you said, and at some point in time, I said, and I was heavily criticized by some of the news, uh, Fox News and such, by using the term, Uh, They were more concerned about the term than about the actual thing that led me to say this, that if we didn't get the help we were supposed to get, this was going to amount to something similar to a genocide. So now what we're seeing is the prospect of gentrification and what others call cleansing in the midst of disaster economics, which has been aided by the central government of Puerto Rico. They say they don't agree with the fiscal control board in the reduction in pensions, but just a few weeks ago, the governor put forth what he called a labor reform. It wasn't a labor reform. It was a let's take away from uh, the labor movement, all the rights that they have. But now, lo and behold, the fiscal control board puts that exactly back into the fiscal plan. So there seems to be this cat and mouse situation going on, But frankly, the credibility of a central government, it's really, really in shambles.
0: I'm talking with Carmen Yulín Cruz, mayor of San Juan, and we're talking about the situation and the post-Maria crisis there in San Juan. I wanted to ask a little about the running for governor thing. If the fiscal control board is a colonial institution that is going to control everything, why would anybody want to run for governor and be the governor of Puerto Rico? Because you would have to implement what the fiscal control board says.
1: No, you wouldn't. You could stand up to it. Gandhi and Martin Luther King show the world that when a series of laws are unfair and unjust, you stand up to them just so that you can prove to the world that this is not fair. So you don't have to.
0: How do you do that if all the legal things in Congress says you have no you no, no decision-making you, power? You
1: don't obey. You don't become an accomplice to colonialism. So what are they going to do? Put the governor of Puerto Rico in jail? You know what that would tell the world? So the gimmick will be up.
0: But they will have the money to close the schools, and you won't.
1: Well, no, they won't have the money to close the schools because the budget department is still run by the Puerto Rican government. So the governor of Puerto Rico could say, look, of all the two, three million dollars we pay on a monthly basis, because this is the worst thing. It's like somebody's beating you up and you're paying them to beat you up. So the Puerto Rican people have seen austerity measure after austerity measure. And in the time that the fiscal control board has been in place, it's used up more than $75 million. So all you have to do as the governor is say, I'm not going to pay you. So let's not participate in the injustice. That's exactly what Martin Luther King did. And he created a movement that changed the world, not only in the United States.
0: You've been traveling in the U.S. and talking to people. Do you think the game has changed on the status of Puerto Rico with people uh, on the mainland? Do you think that there is a different conversation people are having now?
1: I don't call it the mainland because that would make me the second land. So we, we often draw that distinction. But yes, there is. The American people have been wonderful. They've opened their hearts. They've left their homes to help us. We had three nurses from the AFL-CIO that were in Puerto Rico when their houses were caught in the Great Fire last year. They didn't leave us to go save their homes. That is the kind of spirit that embodies the American way of being. And there's a different flavor now. There's a different taste. There's no saying what happened in Puerto Rico happened because of President Trump or happened because of Congress. Well, of course they had a part to play, but people are understanding more and more that it happened because there's a structured way to deal with Puerto Rico, who's a territory and a colony of the United States. And I get a lot of letters, lots of letters, of people saying, look, we're ashamed of the way that the U.S. and our government has treated Puerto Rico. So it's done one thing on the part of Puerto Ricans. It has shown the intricacies of your ability to govern yourself and to move policy forward. And it has done something to the people in the United States. And it has shown that this is something that is not sustainable. Now, there's a part of Puerto Rico that wants to be a state. Some want to be independent, some want to enhance commonwealth outside of the territorial clause, and some, like me, want free association with a dual citizenship. Uh, we already have the U.S. citizenship, so it would be just having a Puerto Rican citizenship. Dual citizenship is not something foreign to the United States. It's something that it's agreed upon. So what I ask people, rather than pushing my own agenda, push a more democratic agenda, it's let's look at the process. I always tell them, marry the process, don't marry the result. Because the minute you say, or somebody says, I'm pro-independence, or statehood, or free association, or enhanced commonwealth outside of the territorial clause, usually the process that they aspire to just shifts the deck a little bit in favor of that result. So what we are proposing, and there is vast support in Puerto Rico for this, is a process of what we call a constitutional assembly, where we know exactly what would statehood look like and when we will get it, what would independence look like and when we would get it, what would enhanced commonwealth outside of the territorial clause look like, and what would free association look like with a dual citizenship, and then have a process of education. And then let Puerto Ricans decide and make sure that the United States commits to accepting the will of the people of Puerto Rico. That could go either way.
0: Do you think that the Hurricane Maria crisis and the fiscal board and everything has changed people's minds about status in Puerto Rico? The things I've been talking with people about, they just seem to think, well, people, it's made mostly doubled down on what they believed before. It hasn't really moved the needle inside Puerto Rico.
1: People are hurt. And they know they cannot turn their back on the truth that we were neglected and that people died because of that neglect. So for those that were staunch supporters of X or Y, perhaps the needle hasn't moved, but they're now willing to have a conversation that they weren't willing to have before because the truth is staring them in the face. Just like, look, you know when in the 60s the african american movement started to evolve i mean it had been some time after brown versus board of education so change and transformation takes place when hundreds of people died it steps up that change and that transformation
0: I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with Carmen Yulene Cruz, mayor of San Juan, and we're here at the University of Illinois at Chicago, here at the conference Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. When you look back on what's happened here after Hurricane Maria, is there something in particular that you're proud that you've done, that you think is made a really strong impact, was really effective, and you'll be proud of all your life?
1: I have very much thought about the way that the team in San Juan responded and the way that they were able to put forth their heart in very, very difficult situations. But I believe that true leadership does not grade itself. And true leadership is really an act of following. What the people that you are fortunate enough to have given you, the deed to their power, provide for you. So I don't measure myself for anything I did. I measure myself for what I couldn't do, what I didn't do, and those that I didn't get to because it is by remembering that and respecting the lives lost that we are truly going to understand the humanitarian crises that followed, mainly because of a botched effort of organizations and the federal government that wasn't ready and didn't want to step up.
0: What do you wish you could have done?
1: I wish I could have had more trucks so I could have delivered more food and more water. I wish I could have had more medicine, insulin, so I could have delivered more insulin. I wish I could have helped a lot more people outside of San Juan. Um, I wish I didn't have to sleep two hours a day so that I could work 24 hours a day. Because literally, when you're in that situation, minutes count for people to survive.
0: Hurricane season comes again in two months. The power went out entirely on the island last week.
1: And the week before last. And
0: the week before last. Are you worried that you're going to be in this situation again?
1: Oh, yes. We're not ready. 500,000 homes, like I said, have either half of their roof or the entire roof with one of those um, tarps. So, you know, and I'm making no, no allusion to political parties in the United States, but blue in Puerto Rico, blue roofs are now the new sense of neglect. We're not going to be ready in time. We're working very hard. The other day I I called and I said, look, we have to make sure that all of our hospitals all throughout Puerto Rico have generators and have tanks that are so large that it could take two or three days before they run out of diesel. We have a hospital at the municipality of San Juan, one hospital, and for all we know, it's the only hospital that has a dual system with a transfer switch. The first one is called the Hulk, because it's huge and green, and it makes mean noises. The second one's called the Mother, because it's even bigger. And we have a 10,000 gallon of diesel. That will give us four to five days before we need to get back to that hospital. It has a transfer switch, so literally the lights don't go out. What happens is that the lights get dim for 10 seconds, and everything. All the ICUs, the operating tables, the emergency units, everything works completely. But that's not the case. And the rest of Puerto Rico generators have been giving way because they're not made to be functioning so constantly. They, they work for five, six months on a continuous basis. So, of course, we are not ready. FEMA admitted the other day that we weren't ready. And all of the models tend to say that it's going to be a very, very... Moved and chaotic hurricane season. so: You know, here's hoping and praying and getting ready and making sure that we have enough. and that's why it's so important that FEMA gets her act together and provides municipalities with the refunds that they are due. In the municipality of San Juan, we have received about 10 million dollars. There's between 17 and 20 million dollars still that we have not received. But for San Juan, that's a big number, for, but for a municipality in Sabana Grande, for example, in the southern part of the island, $500,000, $2 million. The mayor told me, if I don't get that money in the month of May, I may not be able to make payroll. So it continues to add. This botched effort and neglect has a ripple effect that moves and moves from one area of livelihood or essential services to another. And the Puerto Rican central government has decided now it wants to sell the electrical authority and it's going to privatize schools with the charter and the voucher system. So we have to make some tough decisions about what our priorities are and how do we want to ensure that we move forward and what transformation needs to take place and what is the agenda that is at the core of that transformation.
0: One of the inspiring things that happened was the relationship between Puerto Rico and the diaspora. And a lot of nice things happened here in Chicago. Yes. There were a lot of people in the Puerto Rican agenda who really pulled together and did everything as long and hard as they could.
1: That was the first. Five days after the hurricane, September 25th, the people of New York were already on the ground. And the mayor, Bill de Blasio, didn't call me. He couldn't call me. He didn't ask me, Mayor, send me a memo. I couldn't write him a memo. So he just sent with Melissa Mark Viverito at the time, the Speaker of the Municipal, the City Assembly, teams of people that worked around the clock, two weeks at a time, and kept changing them until December. Uh, So we would forever be grateful. And they established our distribution system and helped us navigate through FEMA, those very, very shark-infested waters of FEMA aid. But the people of the Puerto Rican agenda, Ram Emanuel, Luis Gutierrez, Chuy Garcia, uh, and so many others, got there five days after the hurricane. They called United Airlines, and United got a plane down there. The US couldn't get planes, but United got a plane down there. And they gave us our first 75,000 pounds of food. So the people of Chicago saved lives. Really, they saved lives. And for that, as a human, as a Puerto Rican, as a mayor, I will forever be grateful. Because when we saw there were hams and tarps and medication and personal hygiene products and baby diapers and adult diapers, it it was hope that was coming on those trucks.
0: The mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carmen Yulín Cruz, thanks a lot for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. And and once again, thank you to the American people. Thank you to the people of Chicago. Thank you to everyone in the news that has done their bit for ensuring that we are not out of sight so that we're not out of mind.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll recall another hurricane, Hurricane Mitch, 20 years ago in Honduras. I'm Jerome McDonnell, You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, I spoke with Carmen Juline Cruz, the mayor of San Juan, about the devastation from Hurricane Maria. And as Puerto Ricans brace for another hurricane season, we go back 20 years to a storm whose devastation affects us today. In 1998, Central America was hit by Hurricane Mitch. Over 18,000 people died. Hundreds of thousands were left homeless. The storm forced thousands to flee countries like Honduras. Hondurans and others from the region who made it to the U.S. were granted temporary protected status, which starts to expire in July. The BBC's Mike Lanchin spoke with survivors of Hurricane Mitch.
2: It's the last week in October 1998. A massive hurricane has been building up for several days over the Atlantic Ocean, just off the northern coast of Honduras. It hasn't yet hit land, but already it's been sending heavy rain and high winds across much of Central America.
3: It has all the makings to become one of the most powerful hurricanes ever to emerge from the Atlantic. Hurricane Mitch is 350 miles wide and it has reached wind speeds of up to 180 miles an hour. The people of Belize and Honduras have already had a taste of the kind of devastation the hurricane is threatening to unleash on the region and many are facing the real possibility that they will lose their homes and livelihoods to the huge hurricane, which has been sitting just off the coast in the Atlantic.
4: Normally these storms sort of took a turn and and sort of headed up into the Gulf of Mexico or or went away and and sort of all was fine. They burned themselves out. This one did not. It was sitting up in the the Caribbean. It It was just sitting there. It was gathering strength and we knew that.
2: Doug Ryan, country director for the American Development Agency, Catholic Relief Services, was in the Honduran capital, Tegucigalpa, watching anxiously.
4: I would describe Tegucigalpa as just being shrouded in sort of darkness, very cloudy There was a persistent rain, endless, endless rains. There was a sense of uncertainty, certainly, and a, and a certain level of anxiety.
3: Hurricane Mitch has changed course several times over the last three days, and there is still no exact way of telling where the full force of the hurricane will strike along the Central American coast or when.
4: And the key moment really was when the storm pivots and it makes its entry in the northern part of Honduras. That was when we knew this was going to be trouble.
2: Mitch, now a Category 5 hurricane, hit land on October the 29th. It was to be one of the worst Atlantic storms in living memory.
5: From 8 o'clock in the morning it was raining harder and harder. By the afternoon flooding began and the wind was getting stronger. Trees were beginning to fall. The roofs were being lifted off. It was frightening, very frightening. Carlos
2: Hernández and his family lived in northern Honduras, close to the coast where the hurricane first hit. He'd heard warnings of the storm's approach, but like most of his neighbours,
5: hadn't acted on them. The water rose very quickly and within just a few hours it was already inside our house. We could see more coming towards us. It was like a sea... A huge quantity of water full of mud, sewage, trees, rubbish, all with a horrible smell. It was rising and
2: rising. Less than 10 kilometres from his home, a large river had broken its banks
5: and was now pouring into the towns and villages. Everyone in the village started fleeing, rushing from their homes as best they could. It was madness. People were desperate, shouting and screaming as the water filled their houses. Ours was in a better condition, on higher ground, but even then I was soon completely covered with the water. The speed with which the rivers were swelling, overflowing and then flooding entire towns and villages took everyone by surprise. We got out carrying the kids on our shoulders with a few clothes and some food in our arms, We got as far as a tractor and climbed on the back and it drove us out of the village through the water over the top of all the fallen trees. I thought we wouldn't make it. Even though Honduras had been on high
2: alert for days, there'd been no mass evacuations. And now vast areas of the country were underwater.
4: You have to imagine a country that is suddenly turned into something like 8,000 islands, kind of literally overnight and people were cut off the bridges were destroyed roads washed out you know in a span of 24 hours there were something like 8000 people missing presumed dead so there was a really an overwhelming sense that that nature had just decided it was going to going to slap the country around 100 neighborhoods have been completely destroyed 11 neighborhoods have been for sure erased from the Tigwitsigapa map and both the sanitary and physical infrastructure in the city is considerably damaged. Massive land movements, mud in the streets, mud up to the third floor of buildings, dirt, debris, everywhere. There were bodies. There were efforts being made all over the city, and you could see it of getting lime and, and getting bodies covered. Uh, people who had not managed to escape the fury of the water. I went with our church partners, and uh, we began to visit some of the shelters and to get a sense of what was needed um, in terms of basic supplies so we could get things to them. That first morning, I, in the early morning, getting out and seeing left me well, left me shocked. At this stage, the survivors are in most need of food and medication. Most of these people that were evacuated and survived the floods had to evacuate their homes in a matter of 15 minutes because their homes were flash flooded. And so they basically left with nothing but what they were wearing. There were a lot of rumors, a rumor that things like typhoid and cholera were spreading rapidly and that the city was going to become something of a scene out of the bubonic plague. There were there was a certain amount of panic because people were not sure exactly how they were going to eat from day to day. You would see the emptiness in people's eyes. You would see people wondering what, what had happened. This was obviously a, uh, a symptom of trauma. So it was, um, it was very unstable.
2: A curfew was imposed across the country to stop looting, and within a few days, President Carlos Flores was pleading for help from abroad.
5: We don't have water, maybe in 60% of the cities... We are unable to transport uh, the fuel from our Atlantic and from our southern uh, ports. Most of the infrastructure is destroyed. Agriculture, we have lost uh, between 70%. In the total of uh, dead uh, uh, people, we won't count them in the hundreds. It's the thousands that we have.
2: A week ago, thousands of people lived on this spot until a wall of water maybe 20 to 30 feet high took away their homes and the very ground that they were living on. The floodwaters have taken just a week to recede. It'll take Honduras many years to recover. Carlos Hernández and his family were among the lucky ones to escape with their lives, though they'd lost their home and most of their possessions, as well as the land they'd farmed. When they eventually went back to see what Mitch had left behind, they were met with a grim scene.
5: There were some people, women and children, who had died because they didn't get out in time. Most of the houses were still underwater. There was just mud all over and a terrible smell of mud and of death. We became so desperate. We couldn't cook. We had nothing to eat. Everything was dirty. And then there was the disease. The kids got malaria. It became impossible. Carlos and his family eventually resettled in the south of Honduras,
2: where he found work giving advice to local farmers. In its short but deadly passage through Central America, Mitch had left more than 18,000 people dead in its wake. In Honduras alone, as many as 14,000 people are thought to have died. The country still has not fully recovered.
0: That was the BBC's Mike Lanchon recalling Hurricane Mitch in 1998. Hurricane season starts again in two months. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to meet one of the people who helped write a convention on uh, the crimes against humanity. There's an idea going through uh, the United Nations right now for a new convention on crimes against humanity. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.